to his disciples in the New Testament church, and he gives them their marching orders. In verse 19, he says to them, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, making disciples, seeing people saved, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. Of course, as I've said, these are the last words of Christ while on earth before ascending into heaven. This is known as the Great Commission. They're weighty words, uh, not only because they're from the Lord, but because they're his final words before he goes into heaven. They are our marching orders for the New Testament age. They're not suggestions. It's not a philosophy of ministry. Uh, but what he says here or, is an order from the king, the head of the church. And he tells us part of that as commission, not only seeing people saved, but teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. That is uh, to disciple them. And we've been looking at some of the specific commands that the Lord gave in his own personal ministry. It's interesting to me that uh, in the book of Acts, the word believers in relationship to born-again people is only used three times. The word Christian is used twice in Acts, but disciple, disciples, or the word disciple, is used 31 times in Acts. That what is emphasized is making disciples and not just seeing people saved. In a recent uh, survey by Pew Research that asked uh, devout Christians, supposedly, to identify the attitudes and behaviors that they believed were essential to being a Christian. And it was no surprise that 97% said that a belief in God was fundamental to the Christian faith. What is a surprise that 3% would say it's not? And, uh, of course, devout Christians could have a broad meaning to people. Uh, but when they ask uh, beyond belief in God what it meant to be a Christian, 89% said uh, to pray regularly, 70% said to read the Bible regularly, 61 said attending religious services, 47% said serving in the church, 47% uh, said not losing one's temper, 43% said dressing modestly. But actually you could pray regularly, read your Bible regularly, attend regularly, serve regularly in the church, control your temper, and dress modestly, and uh, there's nothing bad in that, uh, but that doesn't 
identify you as a Christian. Because lots of people can do that. And they do do that. And so, real Christianity could be simply said, uh, you know, they were known as Christians, the Bible said. It means to be Christ-like. It means to follow his commands. And that's why this study, at least for me, has been very challenging in that we're looking at his commands. And if I'm going to be a Christian, if I'm going to be Christ-like, then I need to understand that these commands that he gives are important. They are significant in identifying ourselves with the Lord. And this is how he would have us to live. And it goes contrary to my way of thinking in many areas. And in fact, as we'll see again today, what he asks of us is not possible in the energy of the flesh. And so let's go to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43 and see some very, uh, well, in some ways shocking um, things that he requires of us. In Matthew 5 and verse 43, Ye have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you, and persecute you. Here in this one verse, we have four present imperatives. Present tense means all the time. Imperative means it's a command, it's not an option. And he says, love your enemies. I want you to think about someone that you know is your enemy or doesn't like you. Or love them. And then he says, bless them that curse you. So I just give you a good cussing out. Uh, I've never had a lot of those, but it it wasn't any of them that I enjoyed. And it wasn't any of them that I didn't leave there hot under the collar and wanting to go, you know, Harm, harm them. And he said, instead, you bless them. Speak good words about them. And then he says, do good to them that hate you. Didn't say avoid them. Move to the other side of the street. But he said, do good to them. I don't, uh, (laughs) my redneck nature uh, doesn't like that. 
But this is not something that is given for me to decide whether I want to do it or not. This is a command from the Lord. And pray for them which despitefully use you. And so, four imperatives in one verse. We made them one command because they kind of all of the commands we're studying because they all kind of run together. But uh, they're very challenging to say, to say the least. And so let's look at this. As we've done before, we take a look at the command and see what's going on. But in verse 43, and we'll, we'll read some more here later. Uh, really, it goes down to verse 47. But he says, Ye have heard that it had been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Well, where exactly is that? And what is he talking about? Well, if you go back to Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, and we look at in chapter 19, he says in beginning in verse 16, Thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among thy people, neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor, I am the Lord. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thy heart, thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor, and not suffer upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And so we have here uh, part of what the Lord is talking about when he said, you heard, that you, the Bible said, you heard of those from old time that you should love your neighbor and hate thy enemy. Well, the only problem with all that is, is that the, uh, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the uh, rabbis, they just assumed that if we're commanded to love our neighbor, uh, then uh, we naturally would hate our enemies, hate those that aren't our neighbors. But I want you to go over to uh, Luke chapter 10, where the Lord gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, in Luke 10 and 25, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit, inherit eternal life? And he said, What is it? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answered and said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And the lawyer says back to him, uh, or Jesus says to him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But the lawyer, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And so the issue of loving your neighbor and hating your enemy, though we don't find the word hate your enemy, so the issue is, who's my neighbor? 
And you know, the parable here where the priest and the Levitical, uh, the Levi and the priest, uh, they, they, they walk by uh, the man on the side of the road that had been beaten. But when the Samaritan comes along, he helps him out. And basically, who, who is my neighbor? The, who is your neighbor is the one in need. He's our neighbor. Whoever is in need is our neighbor. In Exodus, the Lord referred to the Egyptians as their neighbor. Look in Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 and 33. Leviticus 19 and 33, he says, and if a stranger shall journey with thee in your land, you shall not vex him, but the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself, for we were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so it doesn't use the word neighbor here, but it says the foreigner, the strangers, he is like you, you know? He's like, won't be like one of you, so he's not an enemy. Look back into Exodus chapter 20 still trying to justify themselves about who's, who's uh, the neighbor. In Exodus chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments is, in verse 16, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. So you can't cover your neighbor's wife because she lives across the street, but let's go down to Delta Junction and we can cover the person down there. Obviously, it's not talking about that. It's saying that those beyond our, our own lives are our neighbors. And so when, when the scribes and the Pharisees and the, the rabbis said, you can love your neighbor but hate your enemy, it's uh, contrary to uh, even Old Testament teaching. We find that in Exodus, it tells us when, uh, when a, one of your neighbor's animals, his livestock, strays onto your property, you're to return it. In Proverbs, it tells us we're not to rejoice in the calamities of our enemies or of those that we don't necessarily like. In Proverbs, it tells, them, tells us to give food and water to those that are not necessarily our favorite people. And so, let's look at these commands here in a more detailed way. The first in verse 30, uh, 45, love your enemies. This word love, of course, there's three words for love in the Greek, but this is the word agape. It's the same word that's used in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. This is a superior love. 
This is a love that's not just emotional. There's emotions involved in it, but it's decisional. Not just emotional, but decisional. It's not born out of our own nature. But it has to come through the Holy Spirit living within us. You and I will not be able to obey what's said here in verse 44 if we, first of all, are not born again, and second of all, if we're not relying in a supernatural power. Look in Philippians 2. And look in verse 13. In Philippians 2.13, lots, and lots is, is here, but I'm talking about, I mean, lots is, a lot is covered in this one statement, uh, but we're talking about the aspect of love. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. How, Lord, can I love this guy who is speaking evil of me? How, Lord, can I love this person and bless him as cursing me? How can I pray for this one who is despitefully using me? Well, it's God who works in me, both the will and the do of his good pleasure. For me to be cussed out <laughs> and to go from there and asking God to bless that person who did that could only be done through the power of the Spirit of God. Look at Romans 5 and 5. It's a verse that uh, I uh, read as a mirror to my soul. In Romans 5 he says, he talks about things in our life, how the tribulation works patience, and how God uses trials to grow some experience and hope, and, and this hope which is a confident expectation maketh not ashamed. And then he says in verse 5, again, the hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed or brought in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. And so how looking into the spiritual mirror and seeing how clean I am, a temperature or a gauge for that is how much God's love is spread in my heart. First of all, if, if, you don't, if you've never experienced that, then you need to experience being born again. But once you're born again, 
There's a love that takes place in your life. And I remember as a 13-year-old boy how my attitudes and my thoughts toward those who had challenged me about being saved and had embarrassed me even uh, at, a, at one point. And I remember going out the door. I think I've told you this story after a message preached by a visiting preacher. And we shake hands going out the door. And, and uh, he, he shook my hand, but he wouldn't turn it loose. And he looked me right straight in the eyes and said, uh, have you been saved? Are you saved? Have you been born again or something like that? And I said, no, and jerked my hand. I wasn't going to lie to him. I jerked my hand, and I got out of there as fast as I could. And I hated that guy for embarrassing me. And then when I got saved, the love of God was shed abroad in my heart. And thankful that he cared for my soul. And so there ought to be not only a love for fellow Christians, but he's saying here there needs to be a love for our enemies. We know that one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians is love. And so the Lord is asking us to go beyond our ability, go beyond our want to, Go beyond our flesh and rely upon him. And uh, we'll, we'll look at this again, but you see in verse 45, that ye may be the children of your father which is in heaven, not that we've been doing this, that we've become children of God in heaven, but that we might be identified as the children of God to the world. You realize that there's people and societies and cultures and militant groups and non-militant groups, but they all function on hit back harder to get even, that there was nothing spiritual about Hatfields and McCoys, nothing. And we should, we should quit glorifying it. But we're to love our enemies. And then bless them that curse you, that we reply to bitter words with kind words with soft answers. And uh, if you don't have a problem with that, good for you. I have to, I have to uh, slay, crucify the flesh. Do good to them that hate you. So this person hates me. And uh, he's, he's persecuted me, as it goes on and says. And I'm driving down the road, and here he is, not with just one flat tire, but two flat tires. And I say, he got what he deserved. 
But the Lord said, no, no, no. Pull over and help him. Because we need to understand it's not about you. Never has been. It's not about you. And do good to them that hate you. The Lord lets the rain fall on the just and unjust. And then pray for them which they spitefully use you and persecute you. There's something very powerful about that. That when we leave the situation or the conflict or whatever's happened and we're alone and we bow before the Lord and we say to the Lord Father forgive them for they know not what to do Lord help them Lord, may we win them to you. You see, if you're really a child of God, you can't come into the presence of God and word such a prayer out of the flesh. Without, we, we sang about love this morning, uh, but the love of God ought to be you know, his love is wonderful. Isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful? But he's given us that love. And there's something that happens to our lives and that happens when we assault the throne of God and asking God to deal with this person that hates us. And as we spoke last week, it's not heaping coals of fire on their head that they might get more and more punishment back because our desire isn't that we would enjoy their calamities or our desire isn't, it shouldn't even be that those that persecute us would go to hell, but the heaping coals of fire would show that there is a conviction. It might bring conviction, fiery conviction in their life. During the Civil War, Robert E. Lee was riding across the battlefield after the battle, and there was a Union soldier there, and when he saw that there was an officer of the rebels riding across the field, he began to cuss him out, scream at him very violently. And Lee stopped his horse, dismounted, walked over to the stranger and knelt beside him. And the man's torrent of anger ceased. And Lee said to him, Son, I'm very sorry you're hurt, and I'll pray that you will recover soon. And he was a Christian. And so, 
these are things that are outstanding. They are supernatural. But let me emphasize again to you and to me, they're not optional. And when we disobey, when I grew up and I disobeyed, I suffered the consequences. Sometimes it's on the rear end, and sometimes it's just a reaping what I sowed. And so, why should I love my adversaries? Why should I love those that oppose me? Well, there's, there may be many reasons. I'll give you three. But let me read on down through here to what we haven't read yet. For 44, we've been looking at, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you that they may be the children of your Father, that ye may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth his rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the republicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so. And so, the first reason to show kindness is that we need to imitate our Father. That's what the word Christian is all about. This word has been so maligned and so used uh, and has lost all of its meaning and importance. But I'm to be Christ-like. Who on the cross, being spit upon, hit when he was, before he got to the cross, whipped on the back, prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them. It makes me, you know, we say, well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Well, we shouldn't fall far from what Christ is like. Yeah. That you may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven, that you may act like him, that you might imitate him, that they might identify us as Christians. Because he makes the sun rise on both the good and the bad, evil and the good. And he makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. And you see, uh, 
this supernatural ability supplied by the Lord has the ability to change your home. Brooks and Dunn have this song. I don't listen to country music much at all, but they had this song I heard it impressed me. And he said it was about husbands and wives and like a lonely lighthouse with nobody home. And he said that he's, he's determined that the number one reason for uh, how, he, how he words it, I don't know, the number one reason for the lack of marriages is pride. I'm not going to let Susie talk to me that way. Pride. But the Lord wants us to have a love that's going to change things as the children of God. It'll change your household. That kind of love will change your church your nation, your community, your workplace. That I treat my friends and my enemies the same way. Imagine that. A novel idea. But it's more than an idea. It's a command. And Jesus is saying, I want you to exhibit me in your life. Secondly, we ought to do what this is asking and loving because there's there's no rewards for loving your friends. Look what it says in verse 46. For if we love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? If I'm a Republican, not Republican here, but a Republican, <laughs> uh, maybe the Republicans are publicans, but uh, if I love my, my party and hate the Democratic Party, what reward have, me, have I? That there ought to be something different. You see, the, the, uh, I am uh, pretty famous for skipping my notes here, but uh, the, the uh, Pharisees and the scribes 
define neighbor as your friends, those of your nation, and those of the same religious or political party. And we find that, you find that much, sometimes a lot uh, in the Arab culture, Arabs define their neighbor as their friends, those of their nation, and those that are Shia or uh, different aspects of the uh, Muslim religion. Well, we are to uh, love because there's no reward for loving our friends. And then thirdly, it's going to, it'll, it'll set us apart That we're to be different. They used to sing a song, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Now let me get back again to where I started. It's not that they'll know we're Christians by how much we pray. It's not that they'll know we're Christians by how much we read our Bible. Those are necessary. It's not they'll know we're Christians by how we dress. But they'll know we're Christians by how we treat others. Now let's just be honest. There's a lots of Pharisees in Baptist churches. Yeah. And we're trying to impress each other when the world needs to see Christ in us. <laughs> I've been in churches, visited churches where visitors have come and they were in pants. And before they left, the pastor's wife said, if you'll come by this week, I got some dresses I can loan to you or give to you. What in the world? What in the world? If we're not careful, we can have a mindset like that. The Lord is simply saying, love your enemy. Pray for them. Do good to those that persecute you. And he says, and if you and if you and if and if ye salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans. Now, what about this idea though, that in the Old Testament it does say to hate people. Let me give you an example. In Psalms 139, 
we got into this church and myself and others got into a big uh, stir over loving. In Psalms 139 and verse 21, David says, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. What you need to understand in this passage here, that this is not a personal hatred for what they've done, but this is a strong emotion that he uses for those who hate the Lord. And you see the word grieved here. Am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? The word grieved is a word of love. What your children do and backtalking you and, you know, it, it's kind of humorous to me. And I say, oh, somebody's rear end is going to get warmed up when they get home. But when my children act like that, it grieves me because I love them. And so when he says it grieves me, don't look at that as a word of hatred or anger or but it's a, it's a word of love and then he says I hate them with a perfect hatred how can hatred ever be perfect well because it's a it's it's a it's God's name that's at stake it's God's reputation and the hatred is for what they're doing towards God and then he says search me O God and know my heart and try me and know my thoughts basically David says Help me not to hate in the wrong way. Lord, search me and know my heart and help my heart to be right in this matter. And then he says, and if there be any wicked way in me, lead me in the way of everlasting. And so there is a hatred, but it's not a personal hatred. We must distinguish between private and public enemies and those that... Uh, are God's enemies. David said this, but when Shimei, David was leaving Israel, uh, running from his son who had rebelled, and the guy is over there throwing rocks at him as he marches down the road with his contingency, and he's throwing rocks at David and cursing him, and one of David's soldiers says, Can I get, let me go over and kill him, and he said, no, leave him alone. Now, why? Why should we pray for those that despitefully use us? Why should we follow these commands? Why? Well, not only because he commands it, but, but why did he command it? Why? Well, one idea is so, so enemies will become friends. If I just love them, 
They'll become my friend. Well, so you, you that are, don't remember World War II or even knew there was one, the Prime Minister of England was named, was a man by the name of Neville Chamberlain. And Hitler was trying to rise up and, and he had a piece of property that was, I mean, some, a country that had been in dispute of whether it was under the control of its own control or should be under, back underneath Germany's control, which it was at one time. And Chamberlain encouraged the European leaders and led in giving this disputed land to Hitler. And his thinking was, if we treat him with kindness and love and give him what he wants, then all would be well. But Hitler's tanks rolled through Europe. And so that didn't work. The other reason some use is it's uh, psychological. I never, sp I can never spell psychological right. So just imagine uh, psychological. In loving your enemies, what we're doing is we're looking at them and we're seeing the potential that they have. And if I just love them then I can pull them up to their potential that they have. And that's the philosophy of America. Let's just get them out of the slums and build better buildings for them. There's another big project going on trying to build, to trying to uh, uh, get the people who are homeless off the street and into a house. I just had, a, this year, I had a nephew that overdosed on the streets. And uh, his sister took him in and tried to help him and gave him a place to sleep. He didn't want to live in a house. He wanted to live on the street. Just pull him up by their potential. What's wrong with that? Well, this is what's wrong with it. Their hearts are deceitful above all things. They're desperately wicked. They don't have any potential. There's nothing profitable about them, the Bible says. There's nothing to do with good, no, not one. And so why does he say, love your enemies? Well, verse 45 tells us, doesn't it? And it says, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, that ye may be approved as his children, that you may be a picture of him. Peter says, having your conversation as your lifestyle honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. Why do I do these things? <laughs> because whether I eat or I drink or whatsoever I do, how I treat my enemies, do all to the glory of God. You see, if you're saved here this morning, your overall purpose is uh, to glorify the Lord. 
And so we come to the last section as we have before in these lessons, the crisis moment. The crisis moment medically is where you're at a real a peak and you're either going to get better or you're going to get worse. We'll know how it turns out in the morning. They'll either, they'll either broke the fever and they're getting better or they're going to go worse. We're at the crisis moment. And he says, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good that hate you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for those which despitefully use you. And then we have a haunting question in verse 47. The phrase right in the middle. What do ye more than others? What do I more than the Mormons? What do I more than Jehovah Witnesses? What do I more than the Hindus? What do I more than the Muslims? When it comes to kindness and gentleness and helping others, What do I more than our social system? I'm afraid sometimes that Our evangelism is not so effective, not because of the message, but because of the messenger. Do you hear me? What do I more than others? May God help us. You're dismissed.